with the latest on the corporate front, all the market trends, expert opinion, and sound business advice. It is your unique window into the business world, direct from the heart of China. Hello and welcome to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Coming up, we will have half an hour of business news and analysis. On today's show, China is making plans to boost the consumer confidence and the economy. And we will also take a look at China and U.S. agreeing to new dialogue on trade and export control. And now let's begin with our top story. Chinese financial authorities say the country plans to boost demand further, show up confidence, and prevent risk in the domestic economy in the second half of this year. The National Development and Reform Commission said it will work to improve economic performance continuously and to defuse risk. The country will take steps to help increase the incomes, expand consumption, and stabilize the foreign trade and capital. And China has cut its stamp duty. On securities trading to activate the capital market and boost investors' confidence. So, for more on this, join us on the line now are Chen Jiahe, Chief Investment Officer at Novem Archi Technologies, and also Aina Tangen, Senior Fellow at the Taihe Institute. So, Jiahe, I will start with you. China has cut the stamp duty on stock trading for the first time since the year 2008. So, why is this move now, and what does this mean for the stock market? Well, when you look at the stock market, it has been basically fluctuating for the for the whole year. I mean, for the whole um, eight months of this year, uh, but it actually rose a bit in the in the first few months and later it dropped back. So, if you look for the past three to four months, the market has been pretty weak. But that, uh, but if you look at the whole year and if you look at the total return index, it offers something like two to three percent return. So, so that's basically a flat fluctuating market. But that has been weak uh, in the past, uh, you know, two, uh, three to four. Months, government is trying to stimulate, you know, the confidence of the market, and then brought forward this uh, policy in order to stimulate the market. It looks like the market has been reacting, you know, pretty positive. Jiahe,、mm. other measures announced by the China Securities Regulator this time also include slowing the pace of the IPOs and further regulating the major shareholders' share reduction. So, what do all this mean for the、uh, stock market? Well, this is actually,、uh, from my point of view,、uh, something even more important than the stamp tax, because the stamp tax is a is a one-off thing. You know, just reduce some of the.、Uh, Trading cost—that is all. I mean, but when you are investing, you are not really looking at the trading cost. I mean, the current stand、uh, stamp tax is about zero point one percent, and it's only charged one way when you sell it. When you buy it, you don't pay the stamp tax. Now it's cut into half, so that's about five、uh, basis points、uh, cost. Saving for investors—that—that's really not not too much, you know. But、uh, because when you look at equity investment, you think about ten or fifteen or twenty percent return every year. So that's quite small. But、uh, this limitation on the shareholder cutting,、uh, if the company is not performing too good,、uh, then the largest shareholder will be limited from selling their stocks, from I would say dumping their stocks in, into the market. Has actually、uh, moved the market forward by a very large extent. That the dominant shareholder has to. Make sure the company is good in order to sell their companies,、uh, company shares. So this actually brings much more energy to the market.、Um, the dominant shareholders will be much more responsible for the stock prices, the dividends, the operation of company, and everything. Personally, I think this is much more important than step taxing.、Mm, and Jiahe, how?
how would the performance of the stock market affect the investors' confidence and the overall economy? So this policy is actually aiming at bringing more confidence to the market. And believe me, uh, confidence of the market towards the market is something that can come really quick. If the market rebound by like one or two weeks, you will see the confidence just gather back. And this is the stock market. So Aina, also from January to July, the value added of the aerospace equipment manufacturing grew by over 20%. So how significant do you think is the growth in China's high-end manufacturing industries for the country's economic recovery? Well, it's very important. I mean, as you go forward, uh, it, the country that's going to win uh, the next, uh, and we're in the midst of an economic t- uh, watershed uh, going into this digital economy, is the one that is prepared for it and implementing it. So, if you start looking uh, across the board, China is, you know, for the last eight years, been the number one uh, buyer of uh, robotics and installing them. Uh, they've been. Know, increasingly trying to cut costs, not only at the manufacturing level, but also in terms of logistics by having you know efficient port and, um, and movement abilities, and then also in transactions. This is going to be more important as you go forward, uh, especially as you have these larger groupings like RCEP, uh, the ability of small entities to trade internationally safely and securely, know that they're going to get paid. And that the time and amount of a cost in that is going to continue to go down, very very important. So as China becomes more efficient, it's better. So I, I would completely agree with my colleague. Long term、uh, situation looks very very good for China, especially in manufacturing.、Mm-hmm. And so Jiahe, so how do you see the high end manufacturing industry here in China? Well, currently Huawei just、uh, you know gave a breakthrough and said it was、well, publishing its new Mate 60 Pro mobile phone, having both the 5G、uh, network its own、uh, chips because the US has been banning some of the selling chips to Huawei,、uh, and also included the satellite phone into the mobile phone. So, which means if you if you buy a chip from、uh, a mobile company and store it on that phone, you can use the satellite as much as you like, you know. But but that would be costly. But if you don't have mobile network for some people, such as On the oceans, and this is really useful. So you can see,、uh, you know,、uh, this is very small example of how China's factory industry can break out in the long term.、Um, that's because we have so much、uh, engineers, we have so much university graduates. So that's a very large group of people. We got we got a population foundation 1.4 billion. We have so many university graduates and engineers working, you know,、uh, and working day and night、uh, toward these technological、uh, developments. So finally, things will come out. So that that's actually the base of China's high-end manufacturing.、Uh, I mean, that's the case. I mean, high technology doesn't come out of the rock. Okay, so、mm. you need a large population. You need hardworking people.、Mm. And Aina, so actually, Jiahe mentioned Huawei. So how has Huawei survived after the U.S. restrictions on selling them chips? Well, the 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 greatest resource as we go forward、uh, isn't just a physical resource; it's human resource.、Uh, Huawei has recruited a hundred thousand of the best minds、uh, in the world. They pay them quite well. They have、uh, research and development centers all over the world. And when they were cut off from、uh, U.S. chips,、uh, they innovated. They worked around it. So now they have a phone which is 100% percent、uh, made in China,、uh, and this just shows how quickly China has been able to react. 
Mm-hmm. And so Jiahe so China has been focusing on promoting the innovation and technological advancement and the number of patents applications and grants increase a lot indicating a strong momentum in innovation actually so how does the emphasis on innovation contribute to China's economic development do you think Well, I, I mean that, that's critical. I mean, if you look at the per capita GDP of China right now, I always use this figure because it's so important with analyzing almost everything. I mean, currently the per capita GDP of China is about thirteen thousand、uh, USD. So that's a very critical point.、Mm-hmm. Uh, if a country focuses on things like、uh, you know、uh, infrastructure investments, exports, stuff like that, you can easily grow from a level of just a few hundred、uh, USD per capita, like we were having back in the nineteen eighties. Uh, to a level around ten thousand, that's that's an easy task. But then you come to a period,、um, usually in economics, we we call it the middle income trap. That is,、uh, many countries failed to pass the threshold of ten to twelve thousand USD per capita.、Uh, it trapped many countries, like you know Mexico, Argentina. It, it, many countries has been trapped in this in this area, basically because they they have been developing enough infrastructure, they have been okay with the international trade. But they haven't got their own dominant、uh, high-end manufacturing industries. So it is actually the high-end manufacturing that builds up the backbone of an economy, especially when we talk about large economy. So, so that's the case. I mean, China needs high-end manufacturing and technology and innovation. That's why I mean, if we want to develop, if we want to move the per capita GDP from this current status to around twenty to thirty thousand USD, which is quite close to the level of South Korea, then that means we have to have very Very strong industries, innovations, technology, and that—that's why this is so critical to us, and that's why all the government and businesses are working toward it. And also for China's economy, Ina, the effects of green transformation are becoming evident, with a 30% increase in wind power generation output in July. So, how is the green transformation of the industries such as wind power, such as the EV infrastructure, contribute to China's economy? Yeah, solar, wind power, and EVs,、uh, batteries, and things like that have just been, you know, booming.、Um, Europe is looking to replace its reliance on、um, resource energy、uh, towards renewable. Um, other places are doing the same thing because of the fluctuations in、uh, energy costs.、Um, people want electric cars. China put in the work. And the scale necessary to produce them, and because they're very consumer focused,、uh, the cars are doing very,、uh, very, very well、uh, around the world. You know, the green economy has been very good for China, but it's in something that has been planned. It, it just didn't happen.、Uh, these industries just didn't wake up overnight.、Uh, this was all very, very careful planning, and th- this is really the hallmark of so much of China's. Uh, industry is that they're able to do this. And so, Jiahe, what do you think about the green economy or green transformation of China? You know, its role in the economy. I think I think there are two points、uh, when we talk about the the, the growing economy. The first is that、uh, it's it's a very responsible thing to the world. As a large economy, although a developing economy, China is working hard toward this, and working toward this actually costs the、uh, growth rate. So that's really a res- responsible thing that China has been doing to the global environment. That is to sacrifice its own economic growth by some extent in order to、uh, bring the global environment. To a 
to a better scale and stop the global warming as much as we can. Uh, the second is that the green economy, on the other hand, is also giving a support to the Chinese economy in the long term. I mean, if you, if you separate the energy into what we call the traditional energy and the new energy or the green energy, then China is not a rich country with traditional energy. We don't, well, we do own a lot of coal. I mean, the coal in China is uh, enough for using for the next three to 400 years. So, uh, but if you look at things like oil, gas, we're not rich with that. Mm. But if you talk about green energy, green energy means something like so solar power, solar power panel, uh, wind farm. All these things are manufacturing things, and China's strong with manufacturing. So, uh, making up this industry, making this new energy industry a dominant. Uh, sector of the economy actually gives support of the Chinese economic growth in the long term as well. And Jiahe, the real estate market in China also experienced a slight uh, cooling down with the housing sales and prices showing a moderate decline. So what do you think are the potential impacts of this sector on the overall economy and what measures have been taken to stabilize it? Well, if you, if you talk about the property market, uh, China has, uh, for, for many years, realized that its property market is overheating. Uh, and the country has been doing a lot of things in the preparation for that. Uh, back in 2015, if you remember, that's about eight years ago, China has started to get the property loans away from its banking system. So if, if you look at the bank uh, bank's financial statement, uh, their proportion of loan made to property developers has been reducing in the past seven to eight years. So it's a lot of preparations has, has been done. And uh, the derivatives connected with real estate developers and property sectors uh, have actually been banned uh, from the financial system. So it's many things that has been done. I mean, this is something very different from what we have seen in 2008 global financial crisis that when the property price in the US was too expensive, people were, you know, hurrying to issue the financial derivatives and sell them to, uh, you know, large investment banks and companies around the world uh, in order to make an instant profit. But that was something wrong, you know, that, that's been called the weapon of mass destruction in financial industry. And China has actually been doing the uh, the counter thing of this, partly because we have learned a lot of lessons from 2008. Mm. So if you talk about the property market, it is cooling down. But if you talk about the preparation of the financial market, it is pretty fully prepared. We're speaking with Chen Jiahe, Chief Investment Officer at Novem Archi Technologies, and also Aina Tengen, Senior Fellow at the Taihe Institute. And after a short break, we'll take a look at U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo's visit to China. Stay with us. I am Dan Wang, Chief Economist of Hang Seng Bank, China. The World Today is a real fun program. You will hear interesting people discussing global trend, economic event, what's happening in and outside of China. So, friends around the world, hope you can join us. You are listening to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Chinese Premier Li Qiang met with U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo in Beijing on Tuesday. Li called for the two nations to reduce friction and confrontation to promote economic recovery and cope with global challenges. Raimondo is the fourth high-ranking U.S. official to travel to China this summer to improve relations between the world's two largest economies.
Earlier, Raimondo also met with her Chinese counterpart, Wang Wentao. Wang raised concerns over U.S. tariffs on Chinese goods, sanctions on Chinese enterprises, and discriminatory subsidies. For more on this, I earlier spoke with Dr. Zhao Hai, Director of International Political Studies at the National Institute for Global Strategy, Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. So, Dr. Zhao, after the meeting between Chinese Commerce Minister Wang Wentao and his U.S. counterpart Raimondo, they actually announced the establishment of new communication channels to seek solutions to specific business issues with a working group. So, what signal does it send, and will this continue to contribute to the improved business environment for both countries? Thank you for having me. First of all, I think this is a very positive signal. Uh, sent from both sides to the world uh, that the, both sides will continue to work with each other and establish new uh, channels of communication. Uh, as we all know, that uh, prior to Trump launch the trade war against China, there were extensive communication channels between U.S. and China.、Uh, specifically, there's the GCCT that holds 24/7 meetings over the years, and these reestablishments of communications is similar and different.、Uh, From the previous communication channels, but it's also very important.、Mm. Uh, if you read that statement closely, actually,、uh, this time China-U.S. establishes three levels of communications. On the first level is minister to secretary level,、uh, so that's a high-level communication once a year, in-person、uh, communication.、Uh, and the second level is on the vice minister and deputy secretary level, and they agree to establish a commercial issues working group. And meet with each other、uh, twice annually, so that is also very important because they can communicate regularly about uh, issues uh, for mutual concern. And on the third level, they will establish an export control enforcement information exchange mechanism. And so that means on specific issues related to export control, they can also exchange information and resolve uh, difficulty uh, problems from time to time. So again, I think establishing the three levels of the communication will show that both sides is willing to resolve some of the issues, from bigger、uh, overall issues to export control specific issues.、Mm. So that's a good sign. So what are other main takeaways from this meeting? Do you think? I think、uh, in this meeting, Secretary Raimondo made it very clear,、uh, U.S. side, what does U.S. side mean when they talk about、uh, de-risking instead of decoupling? And also,、uh, she explained to the Chinese side. About U.S. policy towards China, the so-called small yard high fence.、Uh, she made that very clear that on issues related to national security, the U.S. has no room、uh, to negotiate or compromise. However, the vast majority of trade investment relationship does not involve national security concerns.、Mm-hmm. And in conversations between the two sides, I think、uh, from、uh, other channels, the U.S. also repeatedly said that. Uh, the uh, things related to national security only takes about、uh, you know less than 10% of China-U.S. overall trade, and over 90% even more does not involve national security or human rights issues. And therefore, those areas can be seen as maintain regular communications, regular trade relationships.、Mm-hmm. Uh, so that won't be affected.
And last week, 27 Chinese entities were just removed from the U.S. Commerce Department's export control. But there are a slew of serious concerns that the Chinese side has raised over, you know, the unilateral and protectionist measures by the U.S. side, including the U.S. Section 301 tariffs on Chinese goods, its uh, semiconductor policies and restrictions of the two-way investment, etc., etc. So what do you make of that? Well, I think taking 27 Chinese entities off the unverified list is just a very small goodwill gesture. Uh, as we all know, that the U.S. has imposed uh, sanctions on over 600 Chinese uh, companies and entities, uh, and also more uh, financial sanctions on Chinese individuals. And also, there are many, many concerns, as you stated, on tariffs, on export controls and investments. So uh, comparing to those uh, myriad of uh, very important issues, that is impeding, putting us a unilateral barrier between the two sides, this small gesture is not uh, nearly enough. So from the Chinese perspective, we continue to push the U.S. side to reconsider the tariff and also reconsider some of the restrictions on investment and uh, export control. So in the future, I think the two sides will continue to talk about these issues and try to uh, differentiate what exactly does that does uh, those uh, companies or uh, specific products that are dual use related to national security and what companies and products does not involve uh, those issues and should be released from those restrictions. Mm. And those are continually going to be important. Mm. And the U.S. has recently seeked a six-month extension to decades-old science and technology agreement with China. And this landmark deal was signed between Beijing and Washington in 1979. So how has both the U.S. and China benefited from this deal over the years? And what is the prospect of a long-term extension of the deal now? Yeah, I think, uh, first of all, Chinese position is very clear that the U.S. should uh, renew this uh, agreement between the two sides that has been working uh, very well for both countries for 40 years. Uh, and this time, even though the U.S. decided to extend six months and, and, and negotiate or renegotiate with China, uh, and uh, the uh, long-term prospect is still very unclear. Mm-hmm. Of course, we think uh, the one potential solution on the U.S. side is probably uh, in my personal view, is that they will uh, probably put on an annual review over this agreement and uh, look back on this uh, issue every year uh, and uh, probably make it more political. Mm. However, as we all know, that this uh, agreement benefits both sides, and particularly the U.S. side, very much because they have access to Chinese talents and Chinese uh, science, and science and technology community. Uh, and both sides have published jointly uh, science and technology uh, papers uh, in the world, and that number has been higher than any other country uh, mm. between the U.S. and other countries. Mm. So I think continuing this agreement will benefit both sides, not just the Chinese side. Mm. And now the visit by U.S. Commerce Minister Raimondo further indicates that China and the U.S. are finally talking again. So do you think that the two countries can actually work together? I believe that the, they can work together and they must work together. And this is the the issue, most important issue, most important bilateral relationship for the 21st century. Uh, and uh, both leaders, Chinese President Xi Jinping and American uh, President uh, Biden, has gr- agreed last year in the Bali uh, meeting that uh, this uh, relationship should uh, work by you know, working together and uh, uh, particularly working on common challenges. And looking ahead, I think uh, it's very clear that without working together, there won't be any solution to global challenges like climate change and like 
the pandemic or any other issues like the drug issue, the uh, uh, terrorist uh, issue. Uh, so I think there are many, many issues that both sides need to work together. And the downside of not, to, not working together is also very clear. Uh, like Secretary Yellen has stated, uh, there will be a catastrophe for the world if both sides have a complete decoupling and if supply chain no longer work between the two sides. Mm. So again, I think both sides understood this very clearly. Mm. And both sides say that they want to stop this downward spiral and put a floor under the relationship. So is either side actually willing to make any compromise to try and meet halfway on any issues? Well, uh, at present, I believe it's very hard to let any side to make the compromise first or the concessions first because there's a lack of trust and there's a, a long uh, miscommunication and misunderstanding between the two sides due to the pandemic and due to the cutoff of communication channels. So I believe that with the reestablishment of regular communication between the two sides and comprehensive communication uh, between the two sides on both political security and economic issues, that in the future, with the you know higher level of trust between the two sides, more issues can get resolved and both sides are willing to make more concessions uh, for a, a, a greater good. So I think uh, we're looking forward that, uh, you know, with the continuous improvement of uh, the environment, of the atmosphere between the two sides, in the future, they are more willing to work with each other. Mm -hmm. uh, historically, economic interdependence has been regarded as the cornerstone of the China-U.S. relations. And given the present geopolitical landscape, do you think it's still viable to depend on economic ties as the primary pillar for the foundation of China-U.S. relations? Well, I believe that, uh, you know, trade and investments and the economic commercial relationship between the two sides uh, is one pillar uh, or one ballast for China-U.S. relations. Uh, there are more fundamental strategic relationship between the two sides that needs to be uh, carefully uh, managed. And as you mentioned, the geopolitical tensions are rising, and particularly across the Taiwan Strait and also in South China Sea. Um, however, those geopolitical tensions can be gradually resolved by both sides reducing uh, the tensions uh, and also trying to find a pragmatic solution on both sides. So that will ensure that economic ties between the two sides can continue to uh, exert positive push for the bilateral relationship in the future. So again, I think those geopolitical, geopolitical relationship and economic relationship are mutually reinforcing each other. So both sides need to manage uh, both relationships very carefully and mutually uh, pushing each other to make each other more, uh, having more trust uh, on both sides and also have more positive outcome uh, from time to time so that they can uh, continue to work on bigger issues facing global challenge and global governance. Again, we're entering into a new age with more AI technology, uh, with more climate threats and with more uh, instability in the world. And China and the U.S. are the two biggest economies in the world. Without these two working together, none of the major issues can get resolved. That was Dr. Zhao Hai from the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences talking about U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo's visit to China. Well, with that, we end this edition of Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Thank you so much for listening.